0: I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for joining us again this week on Conversations with Consequences. We love our listeners, and we really appreciate your presence in our lives. This week, uh, we have a lot to digest, a lot to think about with uh, the aftermath of Election Day. We've asked a past guest to join us, Dave Reinhardt, to talk about uh, the beautiful litany of humility. We thought that it would be wonderful for this week. We will end our show today revisiting with him. But first we have a good friend of the show on with us. Her name is Katie Faust to discuss a very important topic, the issue of the rights of children and why we need to put them first. Katie is the founder of a nonprofit called Them Before Us and also the author of Them Before Us, why we need a global children's rights movement. Welcome to the show, Katie. Thanks for having me again. You've been on before and I've enjoyed it very much. I, I like your i like your—your your laser focus on the rights of children and how the fact that we don't put them first causes all these uh, distortions in in the family and in our society, And, and then also grave injustice. To our children. Um, but uh, I, I I thought of you. Um, um, recently, I went up to the National Conservativism Conference that was held near here, just north of Miami, recently, and because I wanted to hear your speech. You gave a beautiful speech that uh, I wanted to, to let our listeners know about, so I hope you walk us through that.
1: Yeah, I would love to. It was great to be at the National Conservative Conference. Normally, I kind of do an outline for when I'm going to speak, and then kind of wing it because I'm a little better unscripted, but I actually wrote out the entire speech for the National Conservatism uh, Conference. I've never done it before because I wanted to use this speech as a basis for a documentary and it was well-received. And so, yeah, that's the next thing. It's like, how do I take this speech and turn it into something that everybody can see? Really fleshed it out. The inspiration came from this story that I've heard a million times about Vince Lombardi, where in 1961, the Green Bay Power were supposed to win. They were like the shoe-ins for the NFL championship against the Eagles. And they just blew a fourth-quarter lead. Like, it should have been such an easy victory, and they absolutely blew it. So the team comes back together the next year at, at training camp, and they are just ready to fight. They're like, teach us new things, coach. Give us new strategies. And instead, Vince Lombardi walks in, and he holds up a football, and he looks at these elite players, and he says, Gentlemen, this is a <laughs> And they're like, what? What are you doing? And he went on to say, and this is a block. This is called a tackle. And this (laughs) is how you tackle. This is a pass. And they were just, what are you doing? Like, we know the basics. And he's like, you obviously don't. (laughs) Something has gone very wrong. If you have lost what should have been an easy victory. And so that season, all he did was drill the fundamentals of the game into the heads of his players. And so that's what I wanted to do at the National Conservatives, um, Conservatism Conference is say, we lost, we conservatives lost what should have been an easy victory, an easy question. And that is, what is marriage? What is the definition of marriage? And we lost it because we took our eyes off the ball. We got focused on questions about religious liberty or being concerned that we're on the right side of history or our own self-interest in questions of marriage and family. And so at the conference, I said, so we're going to go back to the fundamentals. And I put up a picture of a child and I said, ladies and gentlemen, this is a child. Mm -hmm. And Walks forward from there. From this child is created when the gametes of one man and one woman come together to create a unique human life. But not only is this one man and one woman required for the creation of this child, that one man and that one woman actually will determine whether or not this child thrives. And then I went through what we know about the social science of children who are developing. First, that A child's own biological parents, the one responsible for creating them, will maximize their safety and their thriving. Um, So a lot of people will say, well, kids don't need biological parents. They just need to be safe and loved. And the reality is that a child's own biological parents are statistically the adults who are most likely to ensure that the child is safe. Katie, love
0: you're starting. You're reminding me of that old, that stupid saying. It takes a village, which implies that any group of collect any group of concerned adults are capable of taking care of a child. And so, I think many of us have rejected that some time ago because we understand it that it's the family that raises a mm-hmm. child. Um, but you go a step further. You say it's the biological mother and father that um, that are necessary to really raise that child properly.
1: Right. Um, and we have had to, I mean, honestly, to accommodate notions of modern family, we it necessitates demis- dismissing biology as an important factor mm-hmm. in raising children, right? Because if biology matters to the parent-child relationship, which it does, that means that adults can't just have whatever they want. They can't cut and paste children into yeah, exactly. any and every adult arrangement, right? And so we spend a lot of time at them before us talking about the importance of biology and Um, we will get to objections about adoption because that is always one of the big concerns that come up, especially when we're speaking to conservative audiences. But the reality is that we have been studying family structure for decades and it's obvious that biological parents advantage children in ways that non-related adults do not, especially when it comes to safety. Um, And so we see that safety actually guarantees some level of child protectiveness and well-being that an intent to parent or desire to parent or just being married to the child's other parent does not grant kids. Um, and so, unfortunately, thankfully, not all there, not all, and not the majority of unrelated adults, step parents, mother's boyfriend, um, father's girlfriend, are abusive or neglectful. But we see that. Instances of abuse and neglect rise dramatically when there's an unrelated adult in the child's home, especially when that unrelated adult is a man. Statistically, that man is the most dangerous person in a child's life. And so we diminish the importance of biology to the detriment of the child much of the time.
0: Well, let me quote so, let me quote you back to you yeah. because I think these are important numbers. Um biological children are 15% more likely to have regular medical checkups, 22% more likely to be buckled in the car, have 5% more money spent on their food and are more likely to attend college. Biological children yeah. have more money saved for their education and have more money bequeathed to them when their when their parents die. Yeah. So these are like little markers, right? We're not saying that it's that important whether <laughs> (laughs) you you have more money bequeathed to you when you die but it is a marker of the interest of the parent in the child right like how far how far the parent will go in that sacrificial love that that we have for children
1: yeah that's correct and what that tells us is that you can look at the money you can look at the time you can look at the doctor's appointments you can look at the rates of buckling in the car and what you see measurably and objectively is that biological parents are the most invested in their children they're the most connected to their children they're the most protective of their children and while you do have heroic step parents who can often step in to fill the gap of a negligent biological parent we do not see any other family structure that maximizes benefits to children the way that the home of their own married biological mother and father do So there really is not a statistical or scientific case to be made to the contrary. Biological parents advantage children in ways that unrelated adults do not. And I'll briefly hop over to adoption for a minute. The very reason why adoptive parents like you and like me have to go through extensive screening and vetting and background checks before we have a child placed in our home is because of this reality that biology does afford a level of protectiveness and connectedness that the state actually has to screen for if it's going to be absent. And so you and I, as adoptive parents, rightly had to prove ourselves because social workers are not fools. They understand that it's risky to just hand a child over to an unrelated adult because biology affords a measure of protection that is a bit of a default, There are exceptions. There are biological parents who are abusive or negligent, but the risk of abuse and neglect only exponentially rises whenever you are working outside of that nuclear family framework.
0: You're right. And an adoption, um, that is taken into account and that is built into the, the way adoptions are managed or it ought to be. I think sometimes it's right. not, unfortunately, but it is. But that's it is not built that's in. because they're
1: doing it outside of adoption best practice. They're violating adoption. Exactly. Best practice if they're doing that.
0: Yeah. yeah. Best practices acknowledge the reality that a child runs a risk when being placed in a home that is, that, that that child is not biologically related to the adults in the home and that's correct. and that's something that we are ignoring on, on so many levels right i mean the the fact that we've taken mm-hmm. off our eyes off the ball which is the child <laughs> and we've placed our eyes instead on um, on the on the the desires of adults uh, the romantic right. interests of adults the way that adults want to be want to form families and have sexual relationships and the child has become an afterthought and why is this yeah. and how is this hurting children do you think primarily
1: How is it not hurting children? I guess (laughs) it's hard to start, right? Like, where do you start? Right. Where do you start? You know, we I talk a little bit in the speech that, you know, those two adults who are responsible for creating the child are statistically the adults who are going to keep them the most safe and loved. They are the ones who, if you can defend the child's right to be raised by those two adults, they will automatically get the perfect gender balance in the home. Which maximizes their development because moms and dads approach children differently and bring distinct and complementary benefits to child rearing. And you are going to satisfy the child's longing. For maternal and paternal love, finally,
0: Katie. Let me stop you there because that's a big statement that people are no longer very comfortable with. That a child has needs uh, of both being loved in a maternal way and in a paternal way by a male, by by the father and the mother. That's a big statement, and I think you'd find a lot of um, objections to that in out there in the modern culture. Why? Why do people object to something that everybody would have acknowledged even just a few years ago that a child needs her mother and her father?
1: They object because their sexual feelings, their sexual identity, and their sexual desires have become God. That's Mm -hmm. why. Mm -hmm. But honestly, what we can do is we can honestly look at the lives of children who have grown up without a mother and father, and overwhelmingly, they say, I miss that. I want that. I long for it. And in the speech and in our work at Them Before Us, we spend a lot of time documenting the stories of children who grew up without a mom or dad, and they experience what we call mother hunger or father hunger. Like even if you've got a boy who was well loved by his two gay moms, he gravitates towards the fathers of his friends because he longs to be loved by a man. And we profile in there a woman who was raised by her father and his boyfriend who was well loved by her two gay dads in her own words. But she would go up to every woman that she knew, her teachers or her father's lesbian friends and say, Will you be my mother? How about you? Will you be my mother? Oh, Can you be my mother today? That's so sad. Because, yeah, children don't just want to be loved in the abstract. They want to be loved by a man and a woman. And while maybe some of your listeners aren't don't know kids that are in, being raised in same-sex homes, they probably know kids who are raised in single-parent homes who ask them, Like ask them if you were raised by a single mom, did you wonder about your father? Did you long for him? Did you find that you were kind of gravitating towards coaches or male teachers or uncles or grandfathers because you wanted that love? Like these are not radical statements. You know, this is simply what it means to be a human child. And that was the point of the speech is to say, this is a child. These are unbending realities of children that Mm -hmm. they long to be known by the two people responsible for their existence. Those two adults grant them their biological identity. They crave the love of a man and woman. They benefit from being raised by a man and woman in a developmental sense. And those two adults are the ones that grant them safety those things those statements those four areas they will never change
0: let me let me quote you back to you katie because this is very pretty i think mom's higher oxytocin levels optimize nurturing and bonding in her first three years dad's increased testosterone transforms a laundry basket into a roller coaster ride her female parent naturally simplifies her language when talking to the child did you get a boo-boo her male parent expands her cognitive development by talking to her like he talks to everyone else dang baby that's a gnarly road rash one parent's default attitude is safety, be careful on the monkey bars, the other naturally pushes her limits. You can make it next time if you get a running start. I like the way that you express that, uh, that the beautiful balance of the mother being nurturing and protective and careful, and the father pushing his daughters and his sons to a more adventurous and, and outward looking uh, attitude, right? A more optimistic attitude yep. towards life than we women have. We wanna keep our little children safe. There's also yeah. I don't re- I don't think you mentioned this, but in most families, there's a sense, a very strong sense. I've always I've, I think probably it's in all families that the father is the um, the primary authority figure, and and that's a very comfortable place for the father. And it's not such a comfortable place for mom when mom has to be the primary authority figure and the one laying down the law.
1: Yes, and we actually see that very clearly in father absent homes, especially with boys, and especially as teenagers, that there is some kind of physical, towering, deep-voiced presence that boys respond to in a way that they don't when it's their mother saying, you have to stop this or that's a bad idea. So those boys have to run into a man who is stronger and who is willing to forcefully enforce boundaries. And unfortunately, if boys especially do not have that in their teen years, They will run up against an authority figure that enforces their boundaries. And oftentimes that's the police. And that is why we see almost a predictable correlation between father absence and criminality. Because that disciplinary figure, especially for teen boys, it's fulfilled the most naturally in the male parent.
0: And that is something that, uh, again, is is we we're we're conditioned by the culture to say to celebrate single moms because they're doing a heroic job. But we go too far, right? And then we want to we want to think that the single mom can can achieve what a two parent mom and dad household can do as far as the yeah, children. But it's but she literally can't, right? So she literally can't.
1: So and what, we make a distinction at them before us. You know, we say the metric. There's one household, and getting back to the opening example of marriage, once you realize that this is a child, right, that these are unbending realities, that court decisions and newfangled technologies for creating children and laboratories and cultural changes and mantras like love makes a family, all of those things are powerless to change who children are and what they need. Children have these unbending realities and necessities. And our culture, our technology, and our laws are either going to respect children or violate children. Those are the only two options. So when we go back to this is a child and we look at questions like, what is marriage? We realize that if this is a child, if they come from a man and woman, if that man and woman are the most connected to, invested in and protective, if they provide the perfect gender balance in the home, if they grant children their biological identity, then... Marriage is a matter of justice for children. Marriage is the only institution, the only relationship that gives children access to both adults to whom they have a natural right and if we redefine marriage it is an act of injustice against children because it requires children to lose an adult to whom they have a natural right so once we understand that this is a child all these other marriage and que- marriage and family questions answer themselves
0: okay but you're you're we're flying against the current or swimming against the current flying against the wind because the idea the 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 general idea out there in the culture is that adults have a right to a child and that is a that is a a belief that's becoming more and more widespread we talked we used to talk about infertility from now from the medical perspective we used to talk about infertility as a man and a woman who are having regular sexual relations over a period of six months this is i'm giving you the definition of infertility medical infertility and and the man and the woman are both in in, well the woman is in her childbearing years she's naturally fertile right she's in that time that time frame where we can have children (laughs) And, and, and without artificial means that's infertility but now infertility has become defined from a social perspective so right. um, in I think in New York State now Two women who are having some sort of sexual relationship are, can be considered infertile as far as their right to a child. So the insurance company must give them the same technologies access to them, pay for the same technologies that a woman and a man, um, in, in when she's in her childbearing years, would be accessible, would be accessible to them. So how did children come go from having rights to? being a right and how can we fix that
1: well it is the confluence of all these radical changes right the cultural changes that elevate sexual adult sexual desire and feeling and identity as the ultimate good it's the technological changes that allow us to separate sperm egg and womb and custom order a child for people in a non-procreative relationship or a single adult and it is the legal changes right where we've redefined marriage um, and we are now moving on to redefine a lot of parenting laws and defining parenthood not as a connection through biology or adoption which are the only two proper ways to define parenthood but now saying that if you have the money and means to put together sperm egg and womb and you intend to parent then you're a parent And you can walk out of the hospital with a completely unrelated child without going through all the screenings and background checks of adoptive parents because your intent to parent the child is enough to deem you a parent to a child. Right. So we are now at this place where everything has has centered around the desires of adults to the absolute disregard of the actual rights of children so we've got to that is why um, I'm on this mission to (laughs) tell people that children have rights to their mother and father they're not items to be cut and pasted swapped and traded designed and discarded for the desire of adults they are vulnerable people that adults have the right to like have the obligation to defend when it comes to their fundamental rights.
0: so um, children are not
1: going to change
0: why do people who who generally agree agree with you because they're good-hearted people they understand children they understand the needs of children why do people then um, feel so extremely uncomfortable, you know, suggesting that maybe surrogacy is wrong, right? Like they see a, mm-hmm. a couple of a, 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 a married couple, a man and a woman, uh, because I've had, I know, I know people have problem, have a trouble with this, even, you know, very, very well formed Catholic people who understand why surrogacy is, is wrong, right? And there's lots of reasons surrogacy is wrong. They would never dare to suggest to a young, to a married couple that, that they shouldn't mm-hmm. take advantage of that technology. Why do we, why does, I know it's a kind of compassion and it's a kind of, you know, they don't want people, we don't want to offend anyone and we want to feel everyone, we we, we want people to have that great joy of a child, right? Something like that. Yes. So
1: first of all, is because I don't think that people understand how harmed children are Mm -hmm. through all of these different means and methods of creating a modern family, right? And I often say modern family is just code for child loss, right? If you have a modern family, something where the child is not being raised by their own married biological parents, what you have is a scenario where the child must lose something to who something they have a natural right to to be in that household. And unfortunately, for those of us who are bleeding hearts and want our incredible friends who are struggling with infertility to have children, surrogacy is part of that. Surrogacy is part of the the modern family machine that has enabled people to insist and commercialize child loss so adults can have what they want, whether it's a heterosexual couple that's struggling with fertility, a same-sex couple that doesn't have an egg or a womb between them, or a single man or a single woman, right? There was a single celebrity woman, I don't remember her name, who created a child through surrogacy and announced it yesterday on Instagram, right? All of these different mix and match they call it are uh, made possible.
0: They call it welcoming a child now, I've seen. Right. Right. Uh, That's the new term terminology. People don't have children. They welcome them. And that's and that, you know, to me that's (laughs) I welcome the child through adoption. So I know (laughs) there there are ways to do that. So I don't want to throw rocks at that necessarily. No. And and here's the distinction.
1: Here's the distinction that we make at them before us. Are you doing hard things for children or are you insisting children do hard things for you? Because mm-hmm. in adoption, the adults do hard things for children, right? We go through screenings, vetting, background checks, home studies, references, post-placement reports. We are going to do hard things to seek to mend a wound that a child has experienced. Third-party reproduction, it insists the child does hard things for adults, right? It insists that we create a wound for a child so that we can have what we desire and in surrogacy, you are always inflicting a wound on a child. Even if that child goes home with their biological mother and father, you're insisting that she lose a relationship with the only adults, the only person they ha- that that baby has a relationship with, their their birth mother. And many adoptees call that their primal wound, Mm -hmm. even if they're adopted by wonderful, loving um, heterosexual mom and married mom and dad, many adoptees would say, I suffered because I lost my mom the day that I was born. And they've got the statistics to back that up. Um, We adopted parents statistically spend more time with our kids than even the average biological parent. We are more educated, more wealthy, and yet adoptees still struggle to thrive in Mm -hmm. many cases Mm -hmm. because there is something sacred and critical about that maternal bond. And surrogacy severs it intentionally and often commercially. Mm -hmm. And so why don't people speak up about it? Well, first of all, because I don't think they understand the harm that it does to children. Um, And second, we once we are adults, we also have to guard ourselves against seeing things from the adult's perspective. We have to train ourselves to look at all of these marriage and family issues from the child's perspective. Because if adults don't get what they want, they're sad. But if children don't get what they need, they are harmed for life. Um, we talk in our book, um, Chapter 5 is all about divorce. Mm-hmm. We talk about how divorce was the original redefinition of marriage. right? No fault divorce was when we officially said Marriage is not an institution centered around the well-being of children. We said marriage is just a vehicle of adult fulfillment. Mm -hmm. It is there to make you happy. And when the marriage ceases to make you happy, it can cease to be a marriage. And that was the first time we redefined marriage. And then gay marriage advocates said, oh, well, if marriage is just a vehicle of adult fulfillment, another man makes me happy or another woman makes me happy. And so we would not have same-sex marriage without no-fault divorce. Mm -hmm. But yes, no-fault divorce told adults your sexual desire, your sexual pleasure is way more important than children's rights and well-being. And in fact, the kids will be fine. I mean, that's what that has been the mantra. No-fault divorce, the kids will be fine. Mm -hmm. Same-sex parents, the kids will be fine. Sperm and egg donation, the kids will be fine. And yet, the kids are not fine. We can look at children of divorce. Children of third-party reproduction, children with same-sex parents, and we see these children struggle disproportionately, academically, physically, emotionally, mentally, that it turns out when they lose a full relationship with their mother and father that they're made to feast on every day, children suffer.
0: Well Katie, okay, so I think you really child realities. I think you have your finger on something extremely important and, and I hope that your message gets out there in your documentary when you when you do it and you'll have to come back and tell us about it um, so we can help promote it. How can our listeners learn more about your work?
1: Go to thembeforeus.com. That is where we live. Um, scroll down and subscribe to our newsletter. We have so much going on so much that's going to start happening even just next year like stay in touch get involved um we are going to blow open different ways for you to start defending children in your corner of the world and i would love for you to be a part of it
0: thank you katie faust them before us Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today I'm so happy to have a friend and colleague joining me. His name is Dave Reinhardt. He worked for many years in DC and then became editor and columnist at the Oregonian newspaper in Portland. He was there for 22 years. Now he dedicates himself to freelance writing and editing. He's a fabulous editor. He's my editor. He works with us at the Catholic Association. He also edited my husband's book. My husband recently wrote a book on pro-life arguments. I'm very proud of him. And it's a wonderfully edited book because Dave is very, very good at that. So thank you for joining us, Dave.
2: You're very welcome. It's good to be with you, Gracie.
0: Dave, we asked you to come on today because you have a special devotion to a prayer that we think should very much be highlighted during Lent, and it's the Litany of Humility. Now, many of our listeners probably are very well aware of it. Maybe many of you read it and pray it during Lent especially, but I'd like to read it for all of our listeners before we start talking about it. O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others, deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being calumniated, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being wronged. From the fear of being suspected, deliver me, O Jesus. That others may be loved more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be esteemed more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That, in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease. That others may be chosen and I set aside. That others may be praised and I go unnoticed that others may be preferred to me in everything, that others may become holier than I, provided that I may become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. Amen. Well, that's the Litany of Humility. What a wonderful uh, dive into the true meaning of the Christian life, isn't it, Dave?
2: Oh, I think it is. It, it, uh, it's, it's, it's a beautiful prayer, and I think it is a prayer sometimes for our age, our age of self-esteem and branding and self-love and things that are presented as as, as positive goods, but uh, we seem to be in the middle of a very unhumble. Age and uh, this is this has been meaningful for me since I first learned of it in the mid 2000s, and uh, I know it's it's been meaningful for others. It in 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 some way it led me to leave the Oregonian, where I was an opinion writer. Opinion writers are not known terribly for their humility all the time, and uh, coming to embrace this. This prayer, and I pray it I, I, for 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 years. I prayed it every every day, and moment by moment, day by day, sometimes hour by hour, it has uh, shaped me and confronted me. It's just been a true true blessing to me.
0: Dave, reading through it, it it uh, it, it appears to me to refute all the all the reasons that modern culture our modern society gives us for happiness to refute them as real sources of happiness because if we're being if we're asking jesus to grant us the desires of our hearts and the desire of our heart is to lose that desire for praise for inclusion for for being um, admired and also to to lose that fear of being as it says, uh, forgotten or ridiculed or wronged or suspected. What a countercultural message this is and, and really a roadmap to true happiness.
2: It really is. Your listeners should know, and I only know this secondhand, but I believe the source, who is a friend of uh, Justice Clarence is I understand that the justice. Has a copy of the litany of humility on his wall in his uh, Supreme Court offices, and has prayed it regularly and found it a great consolation.
0: I imagine him. if you're someone like uh, Justice Thomas, you have to be very firm in all these uh, in all these virtues, right, to to, oh, to, to yeah. go forward as he does every day against the current,
2: especially in, in coming out of the vicious assault on on him. That can harden a man's heart. He's gone to the right place with this litany of humility.
0: I love the part that says that others may be chosen and I set aside. I think that might be one of the hardest challenges uh, to grasp as a Christian, the ability to let go of the desire to be first, to be chosen, to be noticed.
2: Oh, I know. It's a deadly sin. and to be and, and and the need to be reminded of it. I mean, there were different stanzas in each section that that hit me sometimes more than others. One of them is that others uh, that in the opinion of this world, others may increase, and I may decrease. That's one that that hits me pretty hard and is is confronting. Of course, the language comes right out of John the Baptist when he uh, when mm. he saw saw Christ for the first time. The other one that uh, confronts me is the desire to be consulted. <laughs> uh, y- you know, whether it as is as as a, as a member of our my family or as a political consultant, which I was for years or certainly as a editorial writer and op ed writer, you wanna be consulted and when you're not, you still may want it and it still may not be good for you to still want it and uh, and there is true there is true happiness I, I'm not going to claim to be the personification of the litany of humility by any means <laughs> but over time and your listeners should know this if they don't already know it degree by degree, it can change your outlook and make you more sensitive to the times when uh, you need to ask Jesus help in this.
0: What I like about this prayer is that it puts into words uh, these uh, the things that we know are true. Like We know when we meet someone else, when we have someone in our lives who always has to be noticed, always has to be the center of attention, always has to be right, has to be consulted. We know that those people not only make themselves unpleasant and, and decrease the peace of their homes and their workplaces but we know they're also unhappy right so we know that about other people but we often don't understand that about ourselves and how we ourselves are doing that same those same things to a certain degree or other
2: And, and that's why these people often bug us so much because they manifest something that we know is in us and needs to be confronted and who better to confront it with than with jesus
0: Mm -hmm. it's very beautiful what a good thing for lent isn't it
2: It is. It is. Uh, I was intrigued by this because it was attributed and some claimed written by Cardinal Raphael Mary Duvall, who was secretary of state in the early part of the 20th century, secretary of state of the Vatican. And I thought that he was interested in this because he was prey to great ambition and You know, maybe he wanted a higher office than Secretary of State. And I started to learn more about him. And in fact, I learned that it wasn't his prayer. He used a prayer that uh, was around, had been around for some time. And also, he was not a man who was known as ambitious. In fact, he was known as a person who was truly humble. He did not want the, the office that he was Given in 1900, he in fact he he lobbied against himself. He wrote a letter to the Pope saying, "Don't appoint me to this this office." He was just interested in being a pastor and 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 as he said, saving souls.
0: He sounds like exactly the person you want to be in charge, right? Someone who has no yes. personal no personal uh, interest in the game.
2: Exactly. Yes, it's easily found on the internet for people who are are interested in it I recommend it thoroughly.
0: If you're just joining us, we're chatting about the Litany of Humility with Dave Reinhardt, my friend and colleague at the Catholic Association. Dave, another thing that occurred to me is as, as I was reading through the litany, I've recently entered, well, not so recently. I just turned 52, so it's two years ago that I entered into my second half century. I'm starting to see somewhat what it must be like as our energies diminish and we become the older generation and we start to be overlooked. And I have suddenly yes. a lot of situations sympathy for people who must retire because of age and take a step back and uh, all the different ways that age takes away from us our preeminent positions in in our world mm-hmm. in our world whether that's professionally or personally at, at home don't you think that this litany is very useful for that state
2: I do and I can resemble that remark <laughs> I uh, uh, because I'm a little older than 52, I'm 68 and my wife and I are, she is retired and I'm kind of semi, semi-retired. And you do feel that, that the world has sometimes forgotten you or you don't have anything to contribute and it's a challenge. And this will, I think, help to set your mind right there's a there's a line in the second section that talks about the fear of being forgotten mm-hmm. there are so many of, of us who can feel forgotten and do feel forgotten now there's a call on us to kind of remember these people, and and also that we also, we needn't be, we needn't worry so much about being forgotten by the world if we can remember that we are we're remembered by Jesus, and that there's more to us than the things that this world would would give us and lavish on us.
0: Now that we are uh, in the middle of Lent, and, and as we approach the Holy Week, I remember very much that... Jesus himself walked the path of utter humility during his passion and, and death. And that's another really good sign for us, that that's the way to walk, is to walk the, the path of humility.
2: Well, it is. And in, in that Last Supper, it always... Kind of amuses me and confronts me that Jesus had to settle an argument uh, that the, uh, the that his disciples were were having about who was the first among them, and he was saying, no, 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 no. The person who is first will be the great servant, and uh, yes, Jesus was the great serv- servant and and humble, born in a manger, died with criminals, crucified with criminals. And um, it doesn't get much more humble than that, thank God.
0: We have a a strange vision of. I think of Holy Week of Jesus's um, end of, of his life on earth, because we are seeing it after 2000 years of Christian, of explosion of Christianity across the world, it's conquering of, of the world. And so we, we see the king up on the cross, but and we see him as the king, but I think we we, we forget that really he was a naked, tortured man. Abandoned by all his friends, almost. Um, right. Um, yeah, this- suffering the most humiliating death that a person could suffer. Uh, yes. In, in pure, yeah. like, in in everyone watching, everyone in the world watching and and and, and laughing at him. So yeah. I, I think it's important during Lent, and maybe you agree, to stop and and remember that about the
2: Passion. Yes talk about the fear of being humiliated mm-hmm. and the fear of being despised yes absolutely
0: so he yeah. lived it before us now now dave you are a convert and I, I'm sure that that was a, a really spectacular path, as as all the paths of conversion are. And I wonder if you uh, experience what converts do, and, and it doesn't just. I, and I don't think it happens just to converts from one religion to another, or, or one branch of Christianity to another. But I think it happens to anyone who has a real life changing experience where where they start to live their life in a in a different way, a, a way that's congruent with their new. <laughs> With their new world view, uh, people reject you. People say you're not the person that I'm used to. Why are you being so silly? Can we go back to our old ways? Did this happen to you? And could the litany of humility help
2: converts? It, I think the litany of humility can help converts, and indeed anybody it didn't happen to me that much i was i went through a period of non-religiousness but by the time i i had been religious uh well before i became a convert to the Catholic Church. Uh, I had been in the Methodist Church and in the Episcopal Church, and I finally made my way to Rome, and have never looked back. I tell my wife often, even in her presence, that this is the only thing I've ever joined that I didn't want to almost immediately get out of, whether it was a fraternity, a football, and in fact... (laughs) <laughs> our, 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 our marriage. It's <laughs> very common uh, in the first
0: year of marriage, I must say, yeah, Dave. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I just want, I won't want deeper into this. And I was always a little different in my social set, I guess. I was a, the conservative on an editorial board that was very liberal and i had been an academic uh at one point in my life and they're not known for their conservatism at least uh, (laughs) so i they they knew who i was i had some issues with my family uh they and 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 my my mother and father uh but that worked itself out through the love that existed before during and after
0: do you think though so, that uh, that that often happens as a as a test, as it were, to, to people who who find Christ, <laughs> they find oh, themselves I, challenged in their in their pride because people uh, refuse to accept them or they make fun of them.
2: Oh, I do I do think that, Gracie, and I think for me the uh, a big challenge which I won't go into here uh, occurred while on, on multiple fronts. While I was uh, in the, in going to instruction, and it, it it was a it was a significant, manif- multifaceted challenge, and uh, I think the devil tests you, and the evil one uh wants 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 you back
0: (laughs) (laughs) he's probably just uh i I can almost imagine him rubbing his hands waiting for that moment when the convert finally relaxes a little bit (laughs) and he says okay now i'm gonna strike
2: (laughs) yeah and it's not always going to be roses and you're not always going to have these you know you're going to have periods of of dryness and the newness is going to wear off and you're going to become a little aware of some of the warts in the institution Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, Dave, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and insights today on the litany of humility. I hope that our listeners will be inspired to to pray it during this Lent and allow all of our hearts to be transformed by the beautiful words. So thank you again, Dave, and, and also, of course, for all you do as my editor and as a wonderful colleague at the Catholic Association.
2: God bless you and all you do.
3: This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you. As we enter into the concept Sequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday as the church seeks to deepen our annual November meditation on the last things. In the gospel, Jesus gives various details about the end times. He describes how the house of God will be attacked, how there will be imposters claiming to be speaking for God and asking us to follow them, how there will be wars, insurrections, earthquakes, famines, plagues, persecutions, hatred, betrayals by family members and friends, and how even some of his followers will be put to death. When Jesus' listeners asked, Master, when will this happen? Presumably so that they could be prepared. He didn't answer their question directly, not only because the time of the second coming was known only to the Father, but also, and perhaps more importantly, because he wanted them to be prepared for it always. If he had given some date, weeks, decades, or centuries later, the temptation temptation would have been just to go on with life as normal. But Jesus had come to establish a totally new normal, A norm of faith, a norm of vigilant awaiting, a norm of full-time Christian behavior. He wanted the Day of the Lord to be pure, to be a perpetual state, so that each day would be the Lord's day, a day in which we exclaim, this is the day the Lord has made. And the signs of the Day of the Lord, he gives us, help us to maintain this awareness, because they are in fact events we see in every age, when there's destruction, natural disasters, wars, famines, illnesses, betrayals, attacks on the church, and the persecution and killing of Christians. But if we pay close attention to this Sunday's gospel, there seems at first glance to be a contradiction. It, how can Jesus affirm at the end of the gospel simultaneously that some of his followers will be put to death, but that no here on our head will be destroyed? In short, why would God allow so many terrible things to happen to those who trust in him? How's that protecting them down to every last strand of fear? Let's get specific with events in the news. How would he allow Hurricane Ian or Nicole to rip through Florida and destroy so many homes? Why would he allow what's happening in Ukraine, China, Cuba, Venezuela, Madagascar, and Myanmar? Why would he allow the ballot measures and various candidates in favor of abortion to win on Election Day? Why would he allow so many attacks against Christians in Nigeria, where early this week 11 more were killed and over 80 kidnapped? Why, in fact, would he allow so many periods of persecution and martyrdom throughout the centuries? or allow half of all the martyrs in history to have shed their blood in the last century? The answer is something we all have to grasp in order to grow in faith. Well, it's not a contradiction. It's a hard truth all the same. God permits these evils in order to help us become better disciples and better apostles, more fervent followers of him, and more passionate proclaimers of his salvation. He who permits evil solely because he intends to bring from it a greater good, does so to help us become more faithful and bring others to faith. He tells us in the gospel that all of these disasters and sufferings will lead to your giving testimony, and not just any witness. He tells us that he will give us the grace of a wisdom in speaking that all your adversaries will be powerless to resist or refute. The adversities we encounter for our faith shouldn't separate us from the Lord, but move us to abandon ourselves even more to Him. When we're brought to our knees by natural disasters or man-made hatred, it provides the opportunity for us to pray far more devoutly, to grow in faith, and to be proven like gold in a crucible. When we're tested more severely in the faith, God comes to our aid to help us pass those tests, provided that we open ourselves to His presence during trial and respond to Him. And that type of faith is the greatest means to bring others to faith. We've seen since the early days of the church that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of Christians. So many have converted when they saw the way Christians suffered harassment, persecution, imprisonment, torture, and even martyrdom with peace, serenity, joys, and chance. How we forgive our enemies, how we pray for our persecutors, how we freely lay down our life and love for him who freely laid down his life to save our own. But we also see it on a lesser scale when Christians, having suffered natural disasters like the rest, rush unselfishly to help others before thinking of themselves. How so many far from the catastrophe sacrifice in Christ's name as good Samaritans to help people rebuild. Just as Jesus' betrayal, suffering, and martyrdom strengthened his own adhesion to the Father's will. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, Not my will, but yours be done. And just as it led to his giving the most powerful testimony of all from the cross of God the Father's merciful love and saving will, So when we suffer, it's to enable us to give a great testimony of faith. It's a chance for us to show that we Christians live, suffer, and even die differently than the others do. Because we know, as St. Paul wrote to the Romans, that neither persecution, famine of the sword, neither death nor life, nor anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we remain faithful under duress, it teaches others that Jesus is worth living and worth dying for. That type of witness can't help but move people. So we need to think of our own sufferings and how God has given them as an opportunity for us to grow in faith and share the faith. I remember a woman who was married and betrayed by her husband. She had been trying for years to get him to pray with her, to go to confession, to come to church with her on Sunday. He wasn't interested, and it took a huge toll on their marriage. Eventually, one night at a work party, he had too much to drink and ended up going home with a woman who wasn't his wife. When he returned the following morning, his wife was still up waiting for him. He was so ashamed at what he had done. He thought his marriage was over and his family would be destroyed because he had said so many times that if she were ever unfaithful to him, he would never be able to forgive her. He anticipated she would treat him by the same merciless standard, but in the midst of her tears and his tears, she said to him, I forgive you. He couldn't believe it. He asked her how she could forgive him something so evil. She replied that on the day they were married, she made a promise to be faithful to God And to him, for better or worse, she was prepared with God's help to keep that promise. She added that just as God had forgiven her, so she could receive the strength to forgive her husband. The whole experience of his wife's strong mercy led him that weekend to return to receive God's mercy and confession for the first time in decades. He turned his life around. He began to pray, to come to mass, to receive that same strength of Christian faith that he saw in his wife. She had lived an exemplary Christian life throughout their marriage, but none of that sufficed to get her husband to practice the faith. It was only when out of her suffering, she gave witness to the full beauty of the Christian faith that her husband accepted not only the faith, but grew to recognize how lucky he was to have the holy Christian wife he did. And the wife told me that even though the entire experience was excruciating, she had never felt closer to God in her life than when she was sharing his mercy with her husband. God always tries to bring good out of evil, and we need to be aware that out of the evil he allows us to suffer, he wants to bring about the good of our sanctification and the sanctification of others. One of the reasons why Jesus allows persecutions, natural disasters, betrayals, and other objective evils that he wants to convert into moral and apostolic goods is because they wake us up and help us no longer take our faith for granted. They force us to live by faith, whereas when things are fine, our faith can just fade into the background. C.S. Lewis once said in a beautiful reflection on suffering, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God speaks to us with a bullhorn when we and others are suffering and gives us an opportunity likewise to speak with a megaphone to others through our words and actions because others are now awake and attentive. But we don't have to wait for that bullhorn, for an outright persecution or hurricane or personal disaster for God to wake us up. Jesus' words in the Sunday's Gospel ought to be a sufficient alarm clock. Every day is meant to be a day of the Lord. Every day the Lord sends the Holy Spirit to strengthen our faith and help us to give witness to our faith by words and deeds. Every day is an opportunity for us to live differently than the rest and more like Christ. Jesus finishes his words this Sunday with a message of great hope. By your perseverance, he says, you will save your lives. He calls us to stick with it. He recognized that the great temptation that faces any of us when we're suffering, when we're doing something hard or challenging, is to give up. Jesus tells us not to quit. When we feel like throwing in the towel, he tells us to use it to wash and wipe the feet of those who are beating us down. In doing this, Jesus isn't saying merely do what I say, but rather follow me. Despite all he suffered from betrayals to brutal scourgings to the burden of the weight of the cross. He kept getting up and heading toward the finish line, giving witness to the love that made even that much suffering bearable. By his perseverance, he opened the gates of heaven, and by our perseverance, we will enter those gates.